Welcome, and thanks for tuning in to the Watermark OC Church Sunday Message. Watermark is a generational community that is crazy passionate about starting a conversation about God, your relationships, and authentic love. If you're interested in getting more information, please click the link in the show notes for next steps. Thanks again for listening. It's our hope and prayer that this message would transform your life. As Pastor Ben said, uh, my name is Philip. I'm with Foster the City. I'm the executive director. We, we are really at our essence simply a coalition of churches, an alliance of churches working together to raise up foster homes for kids in foster care and then raising up support for those foster families. That's, that's who we are. That's what we're all about. Um, and so I want to talk about that. I'll, I'll kind of share a bit of our story. Uh, let me just tell you where we're headed, okay? We're going to c- continue this conversation that Pastor Ben's already begun about compassion. In particular, what I want to talk about is remarkable compassion. Remarkable compassion. And as I said, this is something that's really near to the heart of God. Um, if, if you look at the word compassion, you have calm, C-O-M, and then you have passion, right? Passion means to suffer Calm, C-O-M, means with, to suffer with. That's what compassion means. It's actually to enter into, to stand with those who are suffering. And we know that this is something that's really near to the heart of God. If, if you look all throughout the scriptures, it is abundantly clear God loves every person on this, on this planet, right? For God so loved the world. Well done, okay. Such emphasis, well done, world. <laughs> for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? He loves every man, woman, and child in this city, on this planet. And yet, if you open up the scriptures, Genesis, all the way to Revelation, you're going to see it all throughout the Bible. There are some people on this planet that have a special place in God's heart. There's some people that make the top of God's list. You open up your Bible and you're going to see it. It's the orphan, it's the widow, and it's the alien, the immigrant. You see it all throughout the Bible. In other words, it's those who, have, are, those who are without their family, those who have suffered deep loss, those who are without protection, those who are vulnerable, those who are far from home. All throughout the scriptures, Psalm 82, it says this, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the weak and the needy. That's literally one of dozens and dozens and dozens of scriptures all throughout the Bible that make it absolutely clear what God's heart is towards the vulnerable. And because this has been true of who God is, this is true of God's people, us, the church. And it has been since the beginning. For the last 2,000 years, this kind of idea of remarkable compassion has been a defining characteristic of the church. In fact, did you know that the first known hospital in every nation across the globe was started by the church, was started by the Christian movement. Isn't that cool? If you look at education reform, prison reform, women's rights, uh, the abolition of slavery, of course, civil rights, and the list could go on and on and on, they all trace their roots back to followers of Jesus. The same is true with foster care. Uh, There's a guy named Charles Loring Brace, my guess is most of you haven't heard of him, but, but you're familiar with what he's been a part of. Charles Brace. He was born in the 1800s in the northeastern part of the U.S. Uh, when Charles uh, was growing up, he grew up in a Christian home. At a young age, he placed his faith in Jesus. Um, and one day, as a teenager, was sitting in church just like you are today, listening to a message from a pastor like you are today, and the pastor said something that just radically changed his life like I did with you a moment ago. I'm kidding about that part. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but this is, basically, this is basically what the pastor said. It became this like, defining moment for Charles's life. He said this. 
he said, you know, when you, when you stop and you consider all that God has done for us in our times of need, it's impossible for us to believe that we don't have a level of responsibility to do something when we see those in need around us. Okay, let me say it one more time. When we pause to consider, when we, when we stop to think about all the ways God has met us in our moments of brokenness, in our moments of need, it's impossible for us to believe when we see those who are in need around us, we don't have at least some level of responsibility to do something. And again, that, that just made a lot of sense to Charles. And so a few years would go by and he was in New York City, he was at seminary, he was studying to become a pastor. And one day, uh, he went for a walk through the streets of New York and he walked into a neighborhood called Five Points. And I'm sure none of you have ever seen the movie Gangs of New York, okay? Because if, but if you had, you would know that Five Points at that time was a neighborhood known for its crime, its poverty, its prostitution, its gang violence. And we said when he walked into that neighborhood, he said that his heart melted because what he saw in front of him were kids, kids living in these really broken, dangerous, unhealthy environments. And when he saw what he saw that day, his mind went back to what his pastor had said those years before. And he realized, in light of all that God has done for me when I've been in this broken place, I've got to do something. I have to do something with what, what I'm seeing in front of me. And so he did. He got some of his buddies together at the age of 27. And he started a, an organization called the Children's Aid Society. They're still around, by the way. You can look them up. The Children's Aid Society. And they started all kinds of programs that dealt like at a systemic level, the root level of what they were seeing in front of them. So, for example, they started the first ever free school lunch programs. They started schools for kids who were disabled. They started the first free dental clinics for kids. They started the first ever parent-teacher association. PTA came from the Children's Aid Society. But most notably, they started what we call here in America, foster care. So they would help these kids who were living in these really broken environments find a, a loving, stable home to live in while their biological family did what they needed to do to create a healthy environment again. And then the families were restored back together. They were reconciled back together. What morphed from the Children's Aid Society, what morphed and evolved from there became what we call in America, foster care. So... Do you follow me? Foster care was started by a pastor. Foster care was started here in America by a Christian with the motivation that in light of all that God has done for us, surely we can do the same for those around us. Isn't that cool? I think that's incredible. Like, that's our history as the church. That's the legacy we carry on today. The same is true with adoption. We have historical records that tell us about an, an early Roman practice, when a, when a Roman family would have a baby, they would take the baby and they'd place the baby down at the feet of its father um, in this ritual. And if the father stooped down and picked up that child into his arms, the child was welcomed into the family. They were, it was, the baby was legitimized. That's actually, by the way, where we get the term raising our kids. So when you bent down and picked up that kid, the kid was welcomed into the family. It's beautiful. The problem is sometimes a dad didn't stoop down and pick up the child. If for whatever reason, maybe the child looked sick, maybe it was an inconvenient time for the family, maybe the child wasn't the preferred gender of that day, if for whatever reason they didn't pick up the kid, instead what would happen is that dad would turn his body away from the child, and then they would take the kid outside of the city, 
and it would be left alone to die. It was called infant exposure. It was completely common, legal, acceptable practice of the time. One of a few things would happen when they would when, when they have this infant exposure, when they leave this baby outside the city. Um, number one, it was obviously not uncommon for the baby just to die from the elements, from starvation. Um, number two, it was not uncommon for the baby to be found by traffickers. Slave traders would oftentimes go around outside of the city at night looking for these kids, especially because so many of them were girls, they would end up selling them off into slavery. But third, what might happen, and we have historical records on this as well, many of them in fact, they might be found by Christians. We are told in these records that early followers of Jesus would go outside of the city at night and they would walk up and down the streets outside of the city listening for the cries of children. And when they'd hear these cries, they would rescue these kids and they would bring them back into their own homes and they would raise them up as their own beloved sons and daughters. And by the way, it was the, it was the early church that put pressure on the Roman government to outlaw that practice. Like that's, that's our legacy as a church. This is what we do. This is our history. And what I'm so stoked to be here to, to, to share with you is that that doesn't just need to be a past. Like, it's meant to be today. It's meant to be our present. It's meant to be a defining characteristic of who we are today as a church. The cool thing, though, is this. You and I don't have to walk up and down the streets of our city listening for the cries of kids. The state of California has told us where we can find them. Um, about six, seven years ago, my wife and I became foster parents, and um, I was uh, pastoring a small church in the Bay Area. Um, I was pastoring in San Jose. I'm coming from the Bay Area this weekend, in fact. That's where I live. And um, at the time, uh, we, this is back in 2015, we'd just become foster parents. We'd, we kind of talked with our small church. We said, hey, let's do this as a church community. Let's find some different ways that we can get focused in our community efforts this next year, and we'll find some ways that we can help impact children and families that have been, that have kind of touched the child welfare system. So we came up with all these ways that we're going to do that. And, and in February of 2015, we invited a social worker to our church to help us cast the vision to our congregation of ways we were going to get involved. And so this social worker came up, and she spent 10 minutes or so kind of talking about some of the needs. And then she sat in the back of the auditorium to my left, to your right. She sat back there. I have a vivid picture of it. And uh, we spent the rest of the service talking about our motivation as the gospel, of, of the gospel. The, 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 what God has done for us through Jesus, bringing us in his family, compels us to do the same for others. She just sat and she listened, and she was really moved watching a little church talk about what they wanted to do. And so she went back to the county building over the next couple of weeks, and she started telling others, hey, I got a, a part of this kind of a sweet, sweet gathering a couple of weeks ago. And so she came back out and met with us, and she said, Philip, uh, we've been talking about it, and we're excited to partner with your church in doing some of these things. She said, but listen, we've been talking about it, and, and right now we are in a crisis in foster care. There is a deficit of foster homes. There are more kids coming into foster care because they've been abused, because they've been neglected, than there are homes that are ready to receive them. So what's happening is kids are getting displaced from their cities and being sent to other parts of California, sometimes even other parts of the country, to find homes for these children. And maybe just pause for a moment to say this was in San Jose, but that crisis that she was referring to is not just true of San Jose or Santa Clara County or the Bay Area. That's true right here as well. In fact, if anything, it's more true right here than it is where I'm coming from. Did you guys know that Southern California manages the largest population of foster kids in the entire country? There are 3,000 kids in foster care just in Orange County alone. 
Across the entire Bay Area, 10 counties in the Bay Area, there's 6,000. In Orange County alone, there's 3,000. There's a deficit of foster homes. And so she said, you think that there are other churches that might want to come alongside you? She said, because frankly, the crisis is just a little bit bigger than your church. She said, you think that there might be other churches that might want to come alongside you? And she said, to create what she called a faith alliance. And guys, for the last six years, it's been one of the greatest joys of my life, connecting with leaders like Pastor Ben, connecting with churches like Watermark, and seeing this, this vision that they had become a reality. Today, there's 161 churches that have linked arms together to raise up foster families and to raise up support for foster families. And we're moving towards this day where one day there's going to be a waiting list of families rather than a waiting list of kids in need of a home. And I... And I'm so, I'm so stoked to see Watermark be a part of this. And I just cannot wait to see what God's going to do through us together as we work with other churches throughout Southern California to keep raising up foster families and support for these families. But listen, when we started um, Foster the City, uh, we started with several kind of core beliefs that were going to be like the foundation, uh, foundational kind of mindsets that we're going to drive this forward. And I kind of want to spend the rest of my time just sharing these three mindsets with you. Um, but let me, let me say this first. Foster care is not for all of you. So take a breath. Everybody can breathe. It's okay. <laughs> uh, foster care is not for all of you. Um, but listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, remarkable compassion is for you. That's not negotiable. Part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to follow his example. And Jesus lived a life of remarkable compassion. And so we follow that example. Foster care is just one expression of compassion. Okay, so, but here's the deal. Regardless of what expression of compassion God might be calling you into, I do think that these three core beliefs that, are gonna, that I'm going to talk about as kind of foundational can be, help, they can help to be driving forces for you in your life of compassion. So, even if foster care is not on your radar, you've got to stay with me, okay? Sound good? Deal? All right. Thank you. Thank you. That was good. That was convincing. That's good. All right, here we go. Here is the first core belief. It's this belief that every person has intrinsic value. Every person has intrinsic value. When I walked in for the first time to Watermark this morning, I looked to my right, and that's one of the, the three things you want everybody to understand. I just saw it. I can't remember exactly how it's worded, but they want everybody to know that they are valued. Every person has intrinsic value. You guys have some cute babies in this church. Um, I've seen many, many cute babies. There's one in the, in the last service. Are there any babies in the, in the service today? Okay. There's some cute babies in this church. Listen to me. Those of you who have babies, I'm going to say this to you, but all, this, is, this is important for all of us to understand. When I, the more that I've been doing foster care, the more that I'm beginning to understand attachment. This idea of attachment. When you have a baby that cries, and you meet that baby in their need, Okay, it could be they needed the bottle, they needed a cuddle, they needed to be rocked to sleep. When a baby cries and they get their need met, two things happen in their brain. Two things are communicated to them. Number one, they're what, this mindset is reinforced in their brain, I am valuable. And number two, I can trust people. Those two things. Every time a baby cries and then they're, they're, they're met in that need, those two things, I matter and I can trust people. Every time a baby cries and they don't have that need met, 
what is reinforced is, I'm, I don't matter, I'm not valuable, and I don't know if I can trust people. And for the last six years, it has been, again, one of the greatest joys of my life, watching hundreds of families step forward and to enter into the lives of these kids who have been abused and neglected and reinforce this idea, you, you are valuable and, and, and you can trust people. We've seen it time and time and time again. Every person has intrinsic value. And we get the opportunity to reinforce that with them as we, as we meet their practical needs. It, we, we get a chance to remind them of what is true about them, what is true about the world around us. Because in the book of Genesis, of course, it says that we were created in the image of God. Right? We were created in God's image. The Imago Dei, his fingerprint is on you and it's on me. In Ephesians 1, it says that uh, God spoke us forth from before the foundation of the world. Pause and think about that for a moment. God spoke us forth from before the foundation of the world. That means that that moment when your mom and your dad came together and put you into being. I know that's disgusting to think about. Hang with me for a moment. When the moment your mom and dad came together and you were conceived, if Ephesians 1 is true, then that means that that moment your, and your mom and dad came together, that was second in your story. What came first was that you were birthed in the heart of God before the physical universe began. Isn't that cool? You were birthed in the heart of God before the world began. You matter to God. These kids and their families matter to God. They are valuable. Every person has intrinsic value. Isaiah says that we were precious to God in his sight. I have a friend who is a foster dad. He tells a story about how he got a call for a child who needed a placement. And he already had kids in the home at the time. And so he told the social worker, uh, he said, well, I already have some kids in the house. Can you tell me a little bit more about this child before we say yes? I want to make sure that he's going to be a good fit. And so the social worker on the other end of the line said, well, we don't know too much about him yet. He's brand new to the system. They said, we do know one thing, though. We know he's a biter. <laughs> and my buddy's like, well, what does that mean? Like, what does he bite? <laughs> and, he's, and he said, I'm not sure I want to take in a biter. And he said, as soon as that, that thought hit him, all of his theology started flooding back into his mind. And he said, and then I realized that, that the term biter is an inadequate description of a human being. The term biter is an incomplete, inadequate description of a child. You know why? Because you're more than the worst thing you've ever done. And you're more than the worst thing that's ever been done to you. Can I just set foster care aside for a moment? And just, can I say that one more time? Because I think that perhaps there might be a couple of you, like God compelled you to be here, just because he needs to remind you of that one truth. You are more than the worst thing you've ever done. And you're more than the worst things that have been done to you. You matter to God. You do, you're valuable to him. Do you know how you determine the, the value of something? How do you determine something's worth? By what someone is willing to pay for it. And God proved his love for us in this. He demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's our first core belief. Every person has intrinsic value. Okay, that leads me to our second, though, and that, that's this, that 
this belief that their story, it's our story. Their story is our, their story is my story. I, I remember it vividly. There was a time in my life when I felt alone and I felt beat up and broken and I felt, I felt like because of all of the wounds and the scars and the brokenness from my past that I had lost any hope for my future. I remember it, I remember it so well. I remember when I was at my lowest and my darkest place, rather than God keeping his distance from me, he met me there. And he made a way for me and he brought into his family. And he, and he made me his son. And he gave me healing and he gave me hope for my future. Is that your story too? Have you been there? Ephesians 1, it's my, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Ephesians 1 verse 5, it says this. It says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. Is that up there? Can we put that scripture up there? And I want to make sure everybody, everybody can see this. Take a, take a minute to read this and let this soak in. Should be the next slide, I think. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. How amazing is that? Listen, I, I don't know if you're like me. I've been at this place. I've asked this, this question many, many times. Um, Perhaps, again, I don't know your story, but perhaps you're here and you've been coming to Watermark for a little while and you've been exploring who, you know, all this Christianity stuff, who this Jesus is, and you're, you're getting to a place, maybe you've even said, you know, if there is a God, even if there is a God, would he want somebody like me? After all the places I've been, after all the things that I've done, time and time and time and time and time again, would he even want somebody like me? Has, has anybody ever been there and asked those questions before? If that's you today, I hope that you can see the truth and the beauty and the power of that verse. Because not only is God willing to let you into his family, it's what he wants to do and it would bring him great pleasure. It would bring him joy to welcome you into his family. It's what he wants to do. On a very finite scale, um, I feel like I've been able to experience this a little bit with our, our kind of foster journey Welcoming these kids into our home has brought so much pleasure, so much joy. Um, I'm going to tell you a, a little story, uh, actually. Uh, it's not in my notes, but I do want to tell it to you. Um, so, uh, 17, gosh, I'm so old. 17 and a half years ago, my wife and I got married. Um, and when we didn't have kids, we had a whole lot of extra time on our hands, right? So we, one of the things we did together was at night... We would read to each other. We'd read the like, series of books together as we were laying in a bed, just out loud. And one of the series that we read was, a, was the Chronicles of Narnia. Most of you are probably familiar with the Narnia series. But it's about, primarily about four kids, two boys and two girls, two brothers, two sisters. It's Peter, Susan, Edmund. Who knows the fourth one? Well done. Okay. Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. Right? And so we finished reading those books. And then we were, you know, at one point just kind of dreaming about our future and having kids one day and all this stuff. And, and uh, we, I remember we said, like, it'd be cool. Like, four is a cool number. Like, that'd be a good number to have of, of kids. Um, we thought it'd be cool to have two boys and two girls, just like the, just like the book. And wouldn't you have it? Uh, years go by, and we start popping out kids, right? And so we have our 
boy, we have our girl, girl, and we have our boy. We have our Peter, we have our Susan, we have our Edmund. And um, we didn't name them Peter, Susan, and Edmund. Can I clarify that? <laughs> it was just, we, but we had our boy, girl, boy, and we were like, man, we're just missing that. We're missing our little Lucy. We're missing our Lucy. We're missing our little girl. And, um, and so years ago by, we started our foster journey. And we just knew one day we wanted to see like a little girl come into our home. And my, my, my second oldest, my daughter, um, actually would even pray for little Lucy. She would actually pray by name. God, bring us a, you know, bring us a Lucy. And um, one day I get a call from my wife. I was at work a few years ago. And uh, she said, hey, uh, we got a call from the social workers. There's a child that needs a placement. Can you meet me at the county building after work? I said, no problem. Drove to the county building, met her outside the double doors. And she said, Philip, guess what her name is? It's actually Lucy. <laughs> so we, uh, we, we go in and we hear about her. We say yes. We bring this little girl into our home. She was two months old at the time. We bring little Lucy into our home and we're just laughing at the sense of humor that God has. And we um, just pour our life into this little girl. And, and honestly, we, we foster her for almost four years, um, which is a long time to foster someone. It's almost four years. And uh, partway through her fostering journey, we were told by the judges and told by the lawyers um, that she was, did not have a home to go back to, that she was going to need a new option for permanency. And so um, this last year, um, this last year, we moved from being Lucy's foster family to her forever family. We adopted her in our home. So, yeah. I do have a picture here. That's our little girl. That's our little Lucy. Um, here's what I was going to tell you about her. Lucy's name, the name Lucy actually means light. And that's what she's been to our family. She's been an absolute source of delight and joy. The girl never stops smiling. She's so funny. She's so fun. She's been an absolute joy. And listen, when I look at her and I think about the way that I adore her, I love her, when she comes waddling out of her room each morning and I'm sitting in my chair and I'm reading my Bible and I see her come waddling out her in her pajamas with her little stuffed bunny, <laughs> and I, like, and I, I just, that, that, the overwhelming sense of love and affection that I have for her, when I look at Ephesians 1.5 and I think, God looks at me like that? He's adopting me into his family, and I bring him that kind of pleasure. Isn't that incredible to think about? That God loves us like that? You know, when, when God brought us into his family, it brought him great pleasure. It's what he wanted to do. But when God brought us into his family, it also came with something else, didn't it? It required, it, it didn't just bring pleasure. It also came with sacrifice. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There was joy. There's also a cross. In the same way, when you and I show remarkable compassion towards others, there will always, 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 always be a cost involved. Um, when people hear that we foster, they'll often say one of a couple things. They'll say, oh man, it's cool that you guys do that, but isn't that hard? Like, don't they come in and like, aren't there behavioral issues and um, the answer to that is sometimes, yeah. Um, the, the reality is all of us act out of the trauma that we've experienced to some degree. To some degree, each one of us act out of the hard things that we've experienced. Well, there's a healing process, but that's, that's part of what we do naturally. The, re, the, the reality is that oftentimes these kids have experienced significantly more trauma than you and I have. And so sometimes they'll act out of that. And that's hard. If I'm totally honest with you, there have been seasons over the last six years where it's felt like hell in my home, being totally honest. 
Um, on the flip side, some people will say, oh, that's so cool that you guys foster. Um, that's, that's a, you guys are amazing. I can never do that. I love them too much. At the same time, you're like both complimenting me and insulting me at the same time when you say, <laughs> I would just love them too much. Um, what they say is like, isn't it hard like having these kids come into your home and you're with them for months or years and then like they go back to their biological family, you never see them again. Isn't that difficult to go through? Do you want to know the answer to that question? Yes, it's hard. <laughs> yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's challenging. If you're doing it right, yeah, it's hard. Um, the first little girl that we brought in our home, she was four months old. And we cared for her for almost a year. And um, we fell in love with this little girl. She's beautiful. And uh, she took her first steps in our living room. Um, her first words uh, was, she called me Dada. She called my wife Mama. She was a sister to my kids. Um, over that year, though, that we were getting to know her and, and falling in love with her, though, we were, we were also getting to know her biological parents. And the reality is that her parents had made some pretty significant mistakes. Um, there was a reason why their little girl was with us. Uh, but they were doing everything that they possibly could, taking all the right steps to get their little girl to come home. And so after about a year, the judge said, green light, let's do it. And so I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember handing this little girl back into the arms of her father at my front door. And my son, who was seven at the time, told me it was the first time he'd ever seen me cry. Because we wept that day. Of course it hurts. But you don't show compassion because it makes you feel good. Right? Because compassion's not about you. It's not about me. I have a friend, he, he says, you, you don't foster to get a child for your family. You foster to give your family to a child. You see the difference? Again, that's true if, you're getting, if you're going to Mexico, if you're going working with the homeless ministries once a month, like whatever the, the, whatever the expression of compassion is, that's true. You don't show compassion to get something for yourself. You show compassion to give yourself to something. And if we are willing to, to do that, to, to embrace that, both the, the pleasure and the joy and the cross and the sacrifice, it's incredible to think about the, lives, the impact we can have on the lives of these kids. Um, that brings me to my, my third and, and final core belief, and that's this, that our investment in the lives of the vulnerable can bring long-term impact, long-term impact. Here's what I mean by that. As you can imagine, um, kids who grow up without a stable, healthy environment, are, they're far more susceptible to all kinds of other toxic negative issues as they get older. So for example, um, half of the kids that age out of foster care, if they're not placed into a stable home, half of the kids that age out will be unemployed in their early 20s, a third will be on the streets, half will have a substance addiction, more than half will have PTSD. In fact, did you know that you're, you're twice as likely to have PTSD as a kid in foster care than a war veteran that's gone through combat? Twice as likely. Suicidal tendencies for youth in foster care are four times higher than the average youth. Um, the FBI did a study a few years ago, and they said that 60% of the kids that they rescued from human trafficking here in the States, 60%, 6-0, had spent time in the child welfare system. I could honestly just keep going and going and going with the stats. Here's my point. 
like six years ago when we decided to say yes to the social worker and, and kind of launch this Faith Alliance of Churches, um, we, we did it, it partly in the motivation that like, we realized we needed churches, we need groups, we need individuals, we need nonprofits that are addressing all of these issues that I just talked about, homelessness, unemployment, trafficking, all of those pieces. We need groups up in San Francisco in the Tenderloin working with those who are homeless. We need groups like IJM who are banging down doors and, and rescuing uh, men and women who are being trafficked right now. We need, we need churches here in, in this area working at the crossing doing the homeless ministry that you guys do. We need that stuff, and we need it to continue, and I hope that some of you will, will sign up to be a part of that. But in addition to that, in addition, what if we also go upstream and we care for the kids before they ever enter into those issues? So like, what would the stats look like in this city, in California, if every single kid that entered into foster care was immediately placed into a loving home? We really truly, we, this is like one of the biggest mantras we have. This is more than just a catchy saying. The best way to see a transformed city tomorrow is if we care for vulnerable kids today. It's true. And I do believe that God might be calling some of you to be a part of that. Again, we have this like, vision that one day, again, that the church, just like we have in times past, is going to be known as the place, the community, where abused, where, where neglected kids are cared for as beloved sons and daughters. And I believe that God might be calling some of you to be a part of that. So I'm going to talk about a couple of key ways that you can get involved here in just a moment. But I did want to give you an opportunity to just quickly watch um, this video. I wanted to introduce you to a friend of ours named Cassie. She was a former foster youth. And um, I want you to hear a little bit of her story and the ways that a, a family impacted her life when they said yes to her. I do want to just warn you. Um, I was reminded of this when we watched the first service. Um, this is, the video is, is a little bit graphic. It's, a, it's not for the faint of heart. And so, um, and yet... Like Pastor Ben said, we don't hide from the darkness, but we're willing to allow ourselves to kind of get immersed in, into the lives and the struggles of real people. And so I do just want to let you know this is a little bit, it is a little bit intense, but I want to let you watch this video of Cassie. Watching that video, and I've seen that a bunch of times, and I was just thinking about, I was in the room that day when we filmed that video, and uh, I was standing behind, or sitting behind rather, the guy who was filming it behind the camera, and I just remember she was sharing her story. I remember just having my hands, my head in my hands, just weeping, trying not to be too loud or be a distraction, but weeping because my heart broke for this young lady, but also weeping because her story is unfortunately not that uncommon. Like right now, there are, there are literally thousands of kids, thousands in, in California that have similar stories of abuse and neglect. And every one of those kids, just like Cassie, has a name. And they have a story. And every one of their stories matter to God. And because their stories matter to God, their stories matter to us, don't they? And my prayer is that for a few of you, perhaps God might be stirring in your heart to enter into one of their stories. And again, there are a couple ways you can do that. You could actually, perhaps, become a foster parent. Um... You could actually take the, the step to become licensed and open up your home and welcome in a child and, and, and be that safe place and stand in the gap with them. That's not for most of you. It's not. But for a, a couple of you, a few of you, perhaps that's something that, that God is stirring. And if that's you today, if, you're, if there's just something that's just bubbling up, I want to encourage you to take the next step to simply learn more. Listen, if you fill out one of our next step cards, I promise you we will not drop a foster kid off to your house this afternoon. All we're going to do is send you an email. 
with a link where you can RSVP to a meeting that's coming up where you can learn a little bit more. But again, that's not, that's not for all of you. But I want you to know that there, there are ways that you can, you can still get involved, even if you can't foster. Maybe your heart burns at this. Your heart cares deeply for vulnerable kids in your backyard, but you're, you're not at a place where you can open up your home. I want you to know that there's a place for you. One of the reasons why there is a shortage of foster homes today is because retention of foster parents is abysmally low. There, there's a study that just came out a couple years ago that said nationwide, 60% of families who foster won't make it past the first year. 60% after they go through all the licensing process and start welcoming kids, by year one, they're out because of all the reasons we've already talked about. Okay? What changes that retention is if a foster family takes their journey within the context of community, covenanted community. So for every church, we, we want to raise up foster families, but we also want to raise up support friends for foster families. For every foster family, we want to see a team of at least three to four support friends. They're going to come alongside them and provide practical, emotional, spiritual support. The, the Foster the City families, the, the little micro-communities of a foster family, and then the support friends that come around them. Guys, can I just tell you, nation, nationwide, 40% of foster families make it past the first year, right? 60% drop out, 40% make it. The foster the city families that move forward based with these, these covenanted support friends, more than 90% make it past the first year. Um, and that's, that's, not, that's not a pat on my back. That's a pat on the back of the, of the families and, and, and individuals and churches just like Watermark that step up and they help people. They help each other. We're better together. Right? So they're bringing meals. They're, bringing transport, they're providing transportation. They're babysitting. My wife and I had a support friend that sent a cleaner to our house month to month. It was awesome. Right? It's your... your uh, praying for them. You're on the other end of that, that line when they need to just get on the phone and talk with somebody and vent about the, the, the frustrations of what's going on. You're, you're there and you're supporting them. So you can become a support friend to a foster parent. And a support friend is not somebody like, oh, Pastor Ben, you guys are fostering? Great. Call me if you need me sometime. I'd never hear from him, right? Because nobody likes to ask for help. A support friend is somebody who's trained, background checked, uh, actually connected to a foster family in a covenant relationship for the duration of a child's placement. So we'd love for you to get involved if you're interested in, in, in learning more about a part of that. And then there's one other role, and that is the role of an advocate. That's a leader here at the church that kind of manages and moves this vision forward. Our team works with you, coaches you, helps you along in the process. But we'd, if you're interested in, in learning about any of those roles, an advocate, a support friend, or a foster parent, I want to encourage you to do one thing, and that is to come to the table in the lobby and fill out that next step card. And then your next step, regardless of what you're interested in, is to come to an interest meeting. We actually have one here at Watermark, I believe, on September 9th. Okay, we'd love for you to come in part of that. We also have some virtual options as well if that date doesn't work for you but we'd love for you to be a part of that. Let me close with this. I'm over my time, I'm sure. Um, again, foster care is not for everybody, but remarkable compassion is. My question to you is, are you living a life of remarkable compassion? I began by telling you what compassion means. Let me finish by telling you what the word remarkable means. Remarkable means you're able to remark on it. Very simple. You're able to remark. In other words, it's worth talking about. So the, the opposite of remarkable isn't bad, right? Because you can be remarkably good and remarkably bad. The opposite of remarkable is fine. So when I fly home this afternoon and I see my wife, my wife's going to say, hey, how was your flight? And I'll say, fine, I hope. <laughs> um, I'll say, yeah, it's fine. In other words, it's not worth talking about. It's not worth mentioning. 
What we're called to, into is a life of compassion that's remarkable, that's worth talking about, because Jesus said in Matthew 5, let your light shine before others that they might see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In other words, live a life of compassion and sacrifice and investment the way you spend your money and your time, the way you care for your neighbors, the way you engage the vulnerable, the way you're, you're hospitable to those around you. Live, live that life in such a way that it causes people to remark, causes people to respond because they see something unique in you. Are you living a life of remarkable compassion? That's what God is calling us into. We're gonna transition our time now into a time of communion. For the next couple of minutes as the band leads us in a song, um, we're gonna just take this time. It's, it's the, the love of Christ that compels us into this. We love because he first loved us, right? And so we're going to take, just, just like that pastor said to Charles Brace back in the 1800s, I'm going to say to you again, when we stop to remember and reflect on the love of Christ, it compels us to do the same for others. So let's take a couple minutes and let's reflect on the love of Christ together. As the band plays, you're welcome when you're ready to come up and to take some of the elements and then take it as you're ready. We hope that this message has challenged and encouraged you. If you need prayer, would like to join a small group community, or are interested in partnering with our work throughout Costa Mesa and Orange County, please go to watermarkoc.com. We would love to start a conversation.